My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. really excited today to bring on a friend from middle and high school, Spencer Ivey, who is going to come on the show today and help me with the political rant where we're looking at technology and politics and where we see that going in the future. So without further ado, it's a pleasure and an honor to introduce Spencer to the show. How are you, Spencer? I'm doing great, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this is exciting stuff. And I, I love that you uh, are on the show right now. Really excited because I know that you're currently working on a newsletter yourself. And so for the listeners, many people know that I started the Riley Rant in January as a way to really start pushing out content, to really start pushing my perspectives on topics of the day to people who were interested in listening. And it's my understanding that you've actually created a newsletter called Vital, where you're doing a similar thing, creating digestible pieces of content where you share your thoughts on issues ranging from technology to food. Uh, so we'd love to hear more about Vital and how that got started. Sure. So the whole thought around Vital was really I was, I was always looking for some sort of source that would kind of outline a lot of trends that we're seeing out there today. And uh, I never really had something that, that was kind of a go-to source for all of that stuff. So what I really wanted to do was to challenge myself to create some content that would help people understand, okay, what's going on in the world today? What are the trends out there that are going to be shaping our world going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, so really, kind of the idea behind the name, at least, is that you know what I'm talking about are, are vital trends that we're seeing right now. And I think a lot of what you, you see in, in the newsletters are topics that focus on the future. So you, know, you, you mentioned I, I have a lot of stuff out there about technology, for sure. So I, I like to work in trends that we're seeing um, that people can learn about in, in like you said, very, a very digestible way. So you can really understand, okay, what am I doing right now? And, and how can I understand the world better so I can, I can move forward and be more informed in, in my everyday actions? So that's, that's kind of the, the brief of it there. And I think it's interesting because when I was starting the Riley ran out and talked about how I had this idea for a very long time, how long was the idea around Vital in your mind? And when did you decide to act on that idea and really push out content. Um, I'd love to hear those stories about people getting over that hump to actually start pushing out things and getting over the procrastination. Sure. So I think my the, the journey to eventually launching Vital was not not a very linear one. I'm sure you, I'm sure you know that from your experiences with the Riley Rant. I mean, I've, I've always loved writing. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've always excelled in, in writing courses throughout high school and, and college. And I just loved to put out creative pieces on whatever I was thinking about. So actually coming out of college, I, I started my own blog talking about uh, design stuff because I thought I, I wanted to go into the design world and have since backed off of that. But I think I used that as kind of a, a launching point for, for getting into actually written, more written content on my own terms as opposed to you know, whatever I was supposed to be learning in high school or college. So kind of use that as a, a testing ground. And, and then actually it was on the 
on the plane headed to vacation um, uh, over over winter break last year or this past year, and just came up with the idea. You know, why don't I start doing more written content on things we're seeing in the world today? Um, it was particularly sparked by a book I was reading called The Inevitable by by Kevin Kelly, and and he was just talking about how going forward in in, in the world it's going to be more important to have people who are able to cut through a lot of the noise that we're seeing in mm-hmm. social media and otherwise, and actually be able to curate content that is relevant. And so I was, I was kind of having all these forces come together at that moment and thinking, okay, uh, I'm going to take the step and do this and actually launch the newsletter. And, and a few days later, put together the list of, of people who wouldn't, who wouldn't mind being spanned by me <laughs> and uh, put, out, put out the first put out the first newsletter and you know a few months later surprise i'm 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 keeping up with it and and it's been a lot of fun yeah well i'm really glad that you pushed past the hump and really came up with the idea with the vital newsletter and really pushing out content that's informative that's digestible and that's also relevant to not only today but the future so we'll definitely encourage listeners to check out vital newsletter and i'll be sure to include the link at the bottom of this episode but given that you focus on some of the biggest topics of the day and given that we're we just celebrated the 4th of July wanted to spend this week talking about technology and politics talking about how we think that technology and politics are going to reach sort of a convergence and a budding head and so we'd love to get your thoughts as you are well versed in the space of sort of thinking about the future and really gathering your thoughts and and sharing your thoughts on some of the biggest issues. Really, really grateful to have you on to talk about technology and politics. So to give you context, in the 1760s and 1770s, there's a significant amount of tension between the 13 colonies and Great Britain. We're beginning to think about natural law and theory and what it means to be a citizen and what it means to have rights and how a government should represent us. And our founding fathers soon begin to realize that it's in stark contrast to the monarchy and Great Britain, uh, which we're under in the 1760s and 1770s. And so you reach a contentious moment in 1775 where the British army, the, the British forces actually come in and try to seize Massachusetts militia. And this is the first sort of appearance of open combat, and it sparks the Revolutionary War. Fast forward a year later to 1776, the 13 colonies band together and they begin to call themselves the United States of America. And the Continental Congress, which was the representative body at that time, they meet and they draft the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. And so that's where we officially state and declare our independence from Great Britain. Of course, it doesn't go away the tension with ink on a piece of paper. There's still tension in the war last, starting in 1775. It ultimately ends in 1783. But during that time, our founding fathers are now trying to craft a government to guide and direct this new and fledging nation. And so when you think about the context of the 13 colonies being at war, angry with Great Britain because of their tyrannical approach and this tyrannical force, it shouldn't be too surprising to learn that our founding fathers create the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation creates a system of government that is extremely weak. I would almost compare it to a middle school classroom where the teacher has decided to leave the room. There's no central authority figure, and instead, it's a loose confederation of states that are given autonomy and power to make their own decisions. And again, this seems like the most viable option, given that they're trying to move from a tyrannical government to a free democracy. And so, very weak Articles of Confederation, but this leads to problems. So, as I mentioned before, 
like the teacher leaving the classroom, everyone is able to do whatever they want. So when it comes to really becoming a powerful nation, it's extremely difficult to ensure that Pennsylvania and Maryland are going to all pay their taxes in a timely manner. Let's say we have to go to war. There's no guarantee that Pennsylvania or Maryland or Massachusetts, that they're going to send in the necessary amount of uh, soldiers or armaments or equipment. And so it's very hard for the nation to really consolidate and come together. And you see the nation go into a significant amount of debt. Morale is low. And it's clear that we have to create a stronger executive branch, a stronger federal government to really consolidate around and to really manage the agenda and the needs of the nation. And so about 13 years after the Declaration of Independence in 1789, we have the Constitution, which is crafted in Philadelphia at the Constitutional Convention. And here we have what we call the United States of America today with our three branches of government, a house that's proportionally represented by the people, a Senate where you have two members from each state, And it really is a place where we have checks and balances and a way for us to empower states to have their own rights and freedoms, which was the intent of the Articles of Confederation, but the improvements that were needed through the Constitution to create a stronger executive branch, to really handle foreign affairs with the consent of the Senate, to really be the leader of the nation and to help guide and direct us. And so that's at a high level just the history of how we came to be. And so as you're celebrating with cookouts and fireworks, know that this was a contentious battle that needed to go through iteration and improvement to get to the Constitution in 1789 and ultimately the form of government that we have today. So that's at the high level, you know, what happened in the past. And we'd love to bring in Spencer now to talk about sort of where we're at in the present day and how we see technology as a force that's disrupting our current government and one that we're going to have to grapple with going forward as it's going to eventually clash with our government. Absolutely. So I think at a very high level, we'll get into the specifics as we keep talking, but at a very high level, we're going to look at how some of the disruptive forces of, of technology and how fast it moves and will only continue to, to move faster, uh, how that's going to clash with some of the entrenched policies, some of the entrenched systems of our current political landscape. So how will we face this collision? How will we deal with it? What will our uh, political landscape look on the other side of of this uh, potential clash that we're already starting to see a little bit of today? Um, So I'll I'll bring it back to you, Paul, to uh, sort of get us started on on that path. I think we'll we'll start with kind of looking at how, you know, we're we're seeing things happen today. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get into um, how... Um, we might see some some technologies uh, forcing us into some particular situations in the future, and then we'll also talk about some roadblocks uh, that we might encounter along the way. Yeah, definitely. And so when thinking about the current day and about how politicians are thinking about technology, you're really beginning to see a significant a number of politicians leverage social media and SMS texting Um, Texting appears to be the future of communication between politicians and individuals, as studies show that 20% of voters prefer to be contacted via text messages, and also that about 98% of all text messages are opened. And so the return on the investment with respect to texting is extreme in that it's higher than emails, better than cold calling, and allows you to really connect with people. And if they're not able to view your message um, at that time, it's sitting in their sort of folder or their inbox where they can easily view it. And so politicians are beginning 
to realize the value and the importance of SMS technology. And you have Obama actually in 2008 really pushing the boundaries and really reimagining what's possible with technology. And so in his campaign, he used uh, texting to announce Joe Biden as his vice presidential pick. And Brian McConnell, he does a great piece on how he was able to leverage texting to collect data. Obama used texting to conduct surveys to figure out if people registered to vote, what zip code they lived in. Once he got that information, he could send reminder messages about cutoff dates for voter registration. He could also, on a state-by-state level, tell people who and where to mail their ballots to, to vote absentee. He could invite people to campaign stops based on their area code. It was a way for him to also remind those people to get out and vote and to also promote some of his uh, candidates on the down ballot in those zip codes. And so Obama truly revolutionized texting in the campaign. And you see in 2016, other candidates really using SMS to gain uh, traction with their followers and their supporters to garner additional donations. And Bernie Sanders went as far as to create his own messaging app where he could create videos and interact with constituents. And so starting with Obama in 2008, even more prevalent in 2016, you see text messages as a way in which people are beginning to target voters, hone in quickly on their preferences, and then leverage those facts to really build out their coalition, not only on election day, but keeping that data for for many years to come. So I thought that was interesting to see how politicians are getting into and adapting to and embracing technology. And I think in an article I was reading, it talks about how Obama really surprised the Republican Party in that 2008 election and put them on guard to say that technology is the future of this election and that if you can't get targeted on texting and on social media, then you're going to be left behind. So that's sort of what's interesting to me in the, the political realm, how technology is starting to take off in that sense. Yep. And I, I totally agree with you. And you, you mentioned at the very end, we're talking about social media as well. I mean, social media is something that is more in our face and we're totally aware of it on the day to day. But we don't realize a lot of times is some of the a little bit more nuanced and sophisticated ways a lot of politicians are starting to use social media. So one example that we came across was how Ted Cruz leveraged in his campaign some data using targeted Facebook ads. So he was able in his campaign for the Iowa caucuses to uh, understand different segments of his voters and then serve them on Facebook very targeted ads so as to very much persuade them and keep them involved in consideration for, for his election. So, you know, while, while social media can, can certainly sway voters in a, in a positive way, um, we're, we're also seeing uh, people like Donald Trump and, and his, his effects on the social media landscape. I mean, we're all very aware of it. We <laughs> see it on a day-to-day basis, yeah. right? I mean, recently, Paul, you brought up his tweet on, on, uh, on, the, on the whole CNN body slam tweet and, and all the backfire that that's bringing to his campaign and or to his presidency. I mean, nothing new there. A lot of damage control, of, of course. But I think what we're seeing now is social media as a, a platform as well for politicians to put out their messages in, in a very clear and concise way. And, and Donald Trump showed that you, if you have a very simplistic message, uh, a message that is, is often polarizing, you can, you can really gain a lot of buzz on social media 
and 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 start to to gain a following, whether whether it's whether it's angry or happy or sad or what have you. Yeah. Um, you can you can really play on on some of the the sort of viral nature of of, uh, of social media to to gain a following, and um, I, I think that's that's going to be super important going forward as we move into into elections down the line. Yeah, and I think that provides a nice segue into our second topic around technology really giving rise to the power of the individual and really bucking laws or rules or protocols that were established previously. So even to the example of Trump tweeting, we begin to see, you know, even in in tweets that he's pushed out this past week around how people are saying he's not presidential for tweeting, but he's saying, no, my social media account is the new modern presidential way to behave. And this allows me to go directly to the people outside of the media and that body slamming video I was telling you about it actually happened earlier this week uh, someone on reddit posted a video so Donald Trump was of course a celebrity before becoming president and he actually appeared on WWE in a sort of wrestling segment and he was wrestling someone uh, sort of on the set of one of the shows and they leveraged that footage and superimposed the CNN logo onto the guy's face that he's wrestling and it's basically him saying that he's taken down fake news and the fraud news and CNN by acting as if that person was seen and he was knocking them down. And so I think that is an example of just how the president is sort of leveraging social media. But then what's even interesting is that the person who posted the video initially on Reddit, you know, he gets back on Reddit and he's super excited. You know, he says never in a million years would I have ever thought that this would have made it to the president's Twitter account. But I'm really excited about that. But upon further investigation and research, people find that the person who originally posted the video was tied to some bigoted, anti-Semitic language, some language that perpetuates and promotes violence. And so it gets back to that point where technology is really opening up the doors of uh, power and accessibility to the individual so much so that they're able to buck sort of protocol or laws or procedures around what can make it into mainstream. And they're allowing themselves to make a voice for themselves. And I think it's also similar to what you're doing with Vital and what I'm doing with the Riley Rand. It's, it's really so easy in this day and age for individuals to insert themselves into the mainstream or the ecosystem just by purchasing a microphone or publishing a newsletter and really promoting it on you know, a SoundCloud account or whatever it may be and really allowing your voice to be heard as an individual. So really thought that it was fascinating to see at the highest levels, just how individuals are able to impact our mainstream through the use of technology. Exactly. And I think it's it's so interesting. You mentioned, you know, it's so easy to get into being able to put out your own voice through whatever medium that is. And the barriers to entry are so low. I mean, you can, anyone can, anyone can do it. Uh, and that's, that's part of what's become so difficult to navigate in in uh, in the political sphere now and, and just in news in general, it's hard to tell which which voices have credibility and which ones don't, right? So the whole rise of, of fake news and whether whatever we're hearing on a day to day is actually grounded in fact. So while on the one side you have the ability for people to to share their voice to be heard, it it also poses another problem that you don't know who's being truthful. And, yeah. you know, a lot of times you can can have big movements uh, based on very little to no fact. So, you know, a lot, with a lot of technologies and uh, social, social media, I, I would consider a sort of technology, 
with all technologies, you're going to have you're going to have those downsides. So you just need to be careful and and be able to understand what you're looking at. Uh, and a lot of times, the trick the trick for me, I mean, you just have to do the time and and actually check out those sources. Um, if if the people are are citing any sort of source, you need to go check that out and see where it's coming from. It's usually as easy as scrolling down the page or whatever article you're, you're reading and just being sure it's coming from some sort of reputable source. Uh, that's, that's what people need to start looking out for um, when they're hearing anything out in the social media landscape, especially these days, um, just to make sure that whatever voices they're, they're listening to um, actually have some sort of credibility with them. That's not going to go away. That's a skill that we need to get better at as, as citizens. I think it almost, it almost goes back to just uh, kind of when we're back in school, right? We would have to pull different pull from different sources and and understand. Okay, are these are these primary sources? What what type of source are they coming from? Uh, that's that's a skill that's going to become more important um, as as we're we're striving to be you know informed citizens. Definitely, and I think that that's a great thing that you flagged around. You know, the technology and the advances we're making. It's almost as if it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it's sort of breaks down the barriers of entry and allows for different perspectives to be heard. But just as you were noting, it can also create a dynamic where fake news enters the mix or where people are able to uh, distort the narrative and then misinform so many people with a tweet or a post or a sharing of an article. And so really love that you flagged that. But even beyond individuals leveraging social media, we also see individuals, particularly in Silicon Valley and, and tech companies, also finding ways to leverage technology to evade and circumvent certain laws that are on the book. And so I, I know that you were mentioning in previous conversation sort of the gig economy and the Treasury sort of worrying about taxes and things of that sort. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? And, and sort of beyond social media, even companies, you know, coming into fruition like the Airbnbs and the Ubers through systematically breaking laws? Absolutely. So I think just starting out at a very high level, kind of the trend that we're seeing with some of these Ubers and the Airbnbs of the world is kind of away from having some sort of central authority to bring goods or services to the consumer and towards more of a, a democratized or decentralized uh, type of structure where consumers can go directly to providers of, of value or of service. So a lot of times when companies like this are born, take Uber, for example, they, they make it so easy for the consumer that they, they obviously take off. They, they have some sort of viral uh, trend to them, uh, and they all of a sudden are in the hands of millions of users. And what is the government to do about that? Well, a lot of times they are very slow to react, and by the time there's, there's millions of users, they're all of a sudden having issues of, okay, well, what happens to this entrenched industry of taxi drivers, or in the case of Airbnb, what happens to this entrenched industry of, of hospitality and hotels? And they are struggling to find precedents of which to judge these new companies because there is none, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's impossible to say this happened in this way in the past and this is how we should treat it now. So with, as going forward, I think the government is going to have to be a whole lot more nimble in how they're able to interpret new technologies coming to a fore. And it's, it's a little bit concerning when you, you see people like Stephen 
Mnuchin, who's the, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, talking about stuff like artificial intelligence and automation, which if, if you're plugged into the tech world at all, or anyone who reads any sort of technology publications, have a very clear understanding that is going in some way to disrupt a lot of industries. It's going to have a lot of impact on the economy and on the citizens. When it, it's, it's concerning when he's someone like that at the head of our government says something like he was, he was, he was actually asked uh, about the topic of, of artificial intelligence. And he replied, it's not even on our radar screen. Um, and he said he's not worried at all about it. And it's, it's concerning. And I think that kind of uh, exemplifies the general uh, awareness in, in, in the politics in politicians' minds right now about technology and, and where it's going. So they're going to have to, like I said, really start to consider technologies that are coming out and be more nimble and be a little bit more open-minded um, in, in how they're thinking about when these, when these technologies come to a fore. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think that, you know, just to give the listeners some additional context on even how the Airbnbs and Uber started, you know, if you're telling me that Steve Mnuchin, our U.S. Treasury Secretary, if he's talking about how this stuff is not on their radar, uh, he's not worried about it, my fear is that automation and other technology is going to sort of appear within society in a similar way in which Airbnb and Uber materialized. And Brad Stone, he writes um, an interesting book entitled The Upstarts, and he's basically looking at how Uber and Airbnb got started. And he notes sort of in an interview, they're sort of talking about how Uber and Airbnb, in order for them to even get started and become successful, they had to operate outside of the laws and regulations around minimum wage, around health and safety, and around tax collection. And they actually had to exploit these loopholes in order to remain viable and successful as those early budding businesses. And Bradstone, in the interview, he notes, you know, just as Amazon's navigation of its sales tax obligations was key to success over its first decade in business, with tough interpretation of taxi and zoning regulations, neither Uber nor Airbnb would have gotten started. By the time many cities recognized their existence, both were fairly large and had the political support of their customers. And so what Bradstone's basically saying is that for these Airbnbs and Ubers to actually come into fruition and to become viable businesses, they had to actually go against and buck established laws on the book with respect to the taxi and hospitality industry. And they had to do so in a way that circumvented the law, built up a, a large customer user base, so much so that when governments actually began to realize what was going on, they couldn't do anything but embrace it as many of their constituents had already adopted the technology and leveraged it. And so if you're telling me that Steve Mnuchin is saying, you know, this is not on our radar, it just reiterates in my mind and reemphasizes the importance of having a government that's aware of this technology, because I don't think that Airbnb and Uber are going to be the only companies, you know, looking at this path to success and not taking advantage of it. And if our government, if they're not serious about being informed about technology, particularly automation and other technology companies that are trying to form around the current laws, they're going to be in for a rude awakening when automation or new Silicon Valley franchises begin to appear and disrupt in significant and meaningful ways. And so definitely something that I don't think that our government thinks enough about and definitely something that needs to be placed on their radar. But when you think about the government's inability to embrace and accept that change. I think it's a nice segue into our last topic around just the massive weight of precedence and how difficult it is to change what's already been put into law. And so 
while, you know, in that previous segment, I critiqued the government saying they're not moving fast enough. Maybe they're just acting and cooperating under our current laws and systems, which are very archaic and very, very hard to change in the first place. Yeah, I think you're right, Paul. I think uh, it's very much a structure that is steeped in tradition, that is clinging very much to the past. You know, when we when we talk about our, our country uh, and, and the beginnings of, of our country, you were, you were mentioning it in the beginning. We were in this in this headspace of we want to avoid some sort of dictatorship. We want to avoid that that tyranny of the majority. That's that's a line that you hear um, very very often referenced when you're talking about the beginnings of our nation. And I think that brought about some some particular structures within our government that have lasted until today. And I think I think if you wanted to get into that and, and start us off with with talking about some of the structures that we have that we're still clinging on to, I think that'd be useful for for your listeners to, to get an understanding of. Definitely. So as you think about what we're talking about in the intro monologue, the success of the Articles of Confederation was contingent upon the fact that each state would continue to have power. And so as you move into the constitutional framework that we have now, there was some tension around how do we bring in the big states like Pennsylvania and the small states like Connecticut and ensure that they all feel like they have a voice in the process. And so you see that, you know, Pennsylvania gets its way with the House of Representatives being proportionally represented. So you can have the number of delegates from each state reflect the population of the state. But then to make a state like Connecticut or Massachusetts feel comfortable and welcomed, you create a Senate that gives each state two senators so that their voices and perspectives can be heard. And so that's created a dynamic today where it's extremely difficult to really change our system. At the highest levels, if you wanted to change the Constitution, let's just say you wanted to amend it, it's very difficult. You have to first either get two-thirds majority in the House or Senate to bring a resolution uh, forward to add an amendment to the Constitution, or you need uh, two-thirds of the states to bring a resolution forward calling for a constitutional convention to add an amendment to the Constitution. But then once you do that, so if you somehow get the two-thirds majority in the House or Senate, or if you get two-thirds of the states to sign on, once you create the amendment, you need three-fourths of the states to agree and sign on to that. So it's extremely difficult for us to really change our constitution, our form of government. And it's difficult because our founding fathers wanted stability, but they also had to navigate the preferences of states' rights and of smaller states being represented as well as larger states that when you even think about trying to change things, you have to take into account multiple stakeholders. But, you know, when thinking about it is is kind of surprising because I know that as we were preparing for this episode, you sort of mentioned uh, that passage. I don't know if you have it in front of you, but the passage around in the Declaration of Independence, the importance of creating new governments. Yeah, so I got that line right in front of me. So it starts with those those words that we've heard many times before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it's the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So essentially what that is saying in jargon that we can understand now and can read easily now is when we get to a point that our government is no longer working, it's on the people to create a sort of revolution like the founding fathers did and, and rewrite things. So there is, there is this, this notion 
that our, our founding fathers uh, have, have brought to us that we can change the government and that it is our, our duty, in fact, to change the government if we find that it is broken and not working. And I think we mentioned um, the whole uh, the whole example of, of redistricting and, and how we draw lines for congressional districts is very much broken. So if we wanted to get into that for a minute now, I mean, a, a term that people have, have heard of quite often is, is gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. And essentially, Paul, you can put some more color to this, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it first, is essentially gerrymandering is the practice of, of drawing these congressional lines in such a way that um, would either um, dampen uh, the influence of a, of a particular group uh, of voters or it would enhance the, the influence of a particular group of, of voters. And, and what the issue with this is, is that we are, we're not creating uh, governments um, that represent the people in, in a way that's, that's the, the most fair and that actually um, represents the, the ideas of the people so what we want to move towards is is something that could be a little bit more representative. Yeah, and I think that when you talk about the redistricting and the issues that we're facing, just at a high level from the Constitution, um, since we're focusing on the 4th of July and also the emergence of a new Constitution in 1789, um, the Constitution states, states that every 10 years the nation ought to conduct a census. And so many people listening, you may have had to fill out census forms around address, you know, where you live, but you fill out this information to give the government a sense of the the U.S. population. And that data is then used to redraw congressional districts. So, for example, uh, in Pennsylvania, if the population grows uh, by X percent, that would mean that they are entitled to an additional seat in the House of Representatives. And that state that lost individuals would lose a seat. And so it's a way to balance out and distribute the 435 congressional seats in a manner that is uh, proportional to where the population is. And so when there are migration shifts across the decades, we can account for that through our census and redraw those districts. And so the way that that works is that ever, after the census is conducted, it usually takes about a year or so for the results to be consolidated. And then the state legislatures across the country then are tasked with redrawing the districts. And this is what you were talking about sort of earlier, Spencer, where you get into problems because if the state legislature is controlled by Democrats or Republicans, they are now able to redraw the congressional districts for the entire state, and they can do so in a way that gives them a competitive advantage. And so if I am, say, in Louisiana, and Republicans control the state legislature, I have an an incentive to create districts that favor my candidates and my party. Both parties have tried to manipulate the system, and it's gotten so bad that the Supreme Court's actually going to hear a case later this year in October around partisan redistricting and around the constitutionality of being able to create districts that give parties an unfair advantage, and that really makes the process unrepresentative. And we see that across states where a candidate for president can win a majority of the state's vote, but the congressional districts can uh, turn out to favor the opposing party. There's a disconnect there, and we're beginning to realize that in trying to figure out how we make government more representative. But as we noted before, it's going to be extremely difficult to change these rules because there's so much power distributed across the government that the states have power, the federal government has power, that it's really hard to bring about changes. And that's one of the the, the struggles they're running up against now is how do you reform a system 
when the institutions are entrenched. But I know that you've been doing some research on some potential solutions to not necessarily redistricting, but of creating a democracy that's more inclusive. Right. So, yeah, Paul, like you're you're, you're talking about, it, it is a very complex system, and I don't think that there's ever going to be, you know, one silver bullet type of solution that's going to solve all of our problems. Uh, but having said that, there are a few ideas floating out, around out there that could potentially um, solve some of these issues. So one of them is the idea of what's called a, a direct democracy, and uh, particularly an online direct democracy. So there's a program going on in Australia um, with an app called Flux, um, which is which is also a political party in and of itself. But basically what it is, is an app to um, have Australian registered voters tell their, their senators how to vote on particular laws. And wow. it, it uses the, the blockchain uh, technology, which for your listeners, if, if people aren't aware, blockchain technology is essentially this distributed um, ledger or, or record-keeping system that cannot be altered and is very transparent so as to keep track of, of particular sensitive information. Um, but this, this system will use that blockchain uh, technology in order to keep track of, of this feedback coming back to these Australian senators. And uh, it's, it's interesting to take a look at because as we want to move towards a more representative democracy, having something like that, where we can directly connect our, our political leaders to voters, is something that we are really going to want to move towards. Yeah, so um, I think that what's even more significant um, is that you know people aren't as hopeful as you and I are, Spencer. Um, there was an article... Uh, that was written by Brianna Rennix and Nathan Robinson. And they basically say, you all are setting yourself up to fail if you're trying to operate under this current predicament. They say that we have a general um, sense that a legislature, because elected, must therefore, quote unquote, represent the people who voted for it. But in what sense do they represent us? Demographically, we all know that isn't true. Take our current Congress, which is 80% male, 95% college educated, and 50.8% millionaires. The population it represents is 50% male, 30% college educated, and 5% millionaires. That's not even close. And so what they're basically saying is that our government currently is not representative, and that even if you try to create uh, new measures like term limits or restrictions on campaign contributions, it doesn't really attack the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that we have a political system where wealthy individuals and wealthy organizations are able to influence and determine who's initially nominated for positions in Congress and the Senate, and then they're able to dictate and control their behavior once in office. Additionally, we have a problem with our electoral system in that people who state they want to run for office um, are oftentimes self-selecting themselves for that role. And they argue that when you have people who are self-selecting themselves for a role, it may end in a nasty situation where the people who want to serve may not be the best or they may be so power hungry or so self uh, and so self-concerned and so narcissistic that they don't really serve and help the people. And so they're basically saying, no, we have to move to what they did in Athens, you know, many, many years ago with a randomly selected Congress. Sort of like jury duty, you know, you're randomly selected to become a part of Congress. And they argue that this will solve for some of the challenges that we're seeing because 
you'll have people who aren't necessarily swayed by special interest, and you'll have diverse subsets and cross-sections of America coming into the, the congressional body to legislate, and it's a way for us to create an environment where we're randomly selecting representatives, but they argue it might be better than the current system we have where it's not representative and people are self-selecting themselves for the role, which may not do any of us any good. And so really interesting to hear your perspective on some solutions, but then this broader perspective of we can't even operate within the confines of the system. Let's go to a randomly selected Congress. So those are just some of the solutions that I've heard about how we can deal with the entrenched uh, institutions and the sluggish movement to reform that our government currently allows for. Right. And I, I think it's interesting, as we've been talking about all of this, we've been talking about the, the need for more involvement from citizens as a whole. We've been talking about the need for the citizens' uh, opinions to be more well represented throughout government. And what the premise of that all rests on is that 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 body of, of citizens will actually be educated and well-informed. So it, it, it is important to remember that while we want to move towards this, this government, this sort of idealistic future where politicians are, are truly representing the interests of the people, we need to remember that we have a great responsibility then to, to be informed uh, about what is going on. So I, I think I think to, to kind of square this conversation off, I, I would say uh, a potential you know, solution would, would even be just finding ways to be more engaged civically, um, to be more engaged in, in local politics. I think people need to take it upon themselves to, to actually learn about issues. And it's not easy, right? I mean, I, yeah. I even admit in my, in my newsletter that I've never been one for politics. <laughs> I have never been very good about talking about it. I, I, I just, it, it's never been an area for me <clears throat> that's been particularly important, but we have, have clearly highlighted why it is important. And I think we need to, to start looking at how, how can we get people excited about um, electing people that will truly represent their interests in government. Yeah, and I think that as we talk about technology and this convergence, and the tension that's going to arise, I do think that, as I said before, it is a blessing and a curse. I think that when we talked about earlier, SMS texting, really trying to meet voters where, they're, where they are, reminding them about cutoff dates, really getting them engaged in the process, I think that those are steps that are going to have a positive impact on the electorate and on helping people become informed. And I think that as we begin to think about how to challenge the system, I'm also sort of happy to see that people are becoming more aware of the political process. And like you were saying about yourself, they may not know everything, but there may be some confusion around, wow, I just watched an election where someone won the popular vote but still didn't win. What is this electoral college and why does it exist? Or I'm tired of Congress not responding to the needs of the people. How can I learn more about who my representative is? How can I call them and tell them not to support X, Y, or Z bill? I feel like we're beginning to see the initial onset of candidates meeting voters where they, are, where they are, but then also in our current political climate, voters beginning to learn more about the process and beginning to realize that some of it seems archaic or problematic. And as we were talking about in this episode, there will reach a point where citizens become informed, where technology becomes even more advanced, and where there's a tension between our archaic structures and the knowledge of 
our constituents and of technology that will force us to really make a change. And I just hope that, as you talked about with Steve Mnuchin, that this does not remain off of the radar of our government, but that is something that we can actually acknowledge as a problem and a force for good, because I think that's the only way that we can truly become a more perfect union. That's the only way that we can really have a government for the people, by the people. And I think that's a way that we can adapt to this ever-changing political landscape and this ever-changing technological industry that's going to play a part in shifting and sort of adapting and informing what we view as our government and how they're supposed to respond to us. So I think these are all great topics and really grateful to have you, Spencer, on this show. I'm really thankful for you for the collaboration, and I hope that we can continue to work together in the future. I think you have a strong suit in blogging. It's evident when you're telling me that you were writing throughout college and you excelled in those courses. I believe it because when I read your newsletters, it's so succinct. It's it's spoken to me with humor and in a way that relates to me. And as we're reading the Declaration of Independence with all that uh, exquisite language, it can sometimes be a, a, a limiting or it can sometimes be a barrier for people to enter and to understand. And so really love that your platform is trying to break down those barriers, trying to deliver content in a meaningful way. And so really grateful to have you on the show and hope that we can collaborate, whether it's you entering more into the podcasting game and me maybe entering more into the blogging really see opportunities for collaboration and really excited that we got to do this initial episode together yeah paul this is this has been great and frankly it's pushed me out of my my comfort zone to uh be talking so much here <laughs> i think uh if there's anything that could be learned from you it's uh how, how well you can articulate certain points and i, I think that's uh that's one of the whole reasons that i got into this right is to to really start to push my boundaries of, of what I'm learning and to collaborate with people like yourself who have, who have plenty to offer. And I, I hope to, to learn a whole lot more from you as we go forward. Um, if I could uh, somehow be as articulate as you one day, that would be pretty cool. And I, <laughs> I, I look forward to uh, any other collaborations that we might do down the line. Definitely. And I hope that Spencer's story will compel all of you to really think about those dreams that you have internalized that you want to bring into the world and into the atmosphere and into the ecosystem. Uh, there is value in pushing out content. And so I hope that not only these rants, these these 21 rants that we put on through the Riley rant, but also hearing stories like the one that Spencer told about how he was on a plane and he wanted to really think about pushing out content that was digestible. There is a space for those voices and those perspectives. And so I hope that beyond the talks of technology and politics, that you also see the value in going after interests and hobbies and, and strengths that you have and that you can share with the world. Thank you all for tuning in to the 21st official episode of The Riley Rant. Remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant.